Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 26 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graven. We're joined, as usual, by my good friend, Jamie Flinchbaugh. Jamie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's the uh, first day of, first Sunday of spring in both uh, officially and in spirit. Uh, so really starting to enjoy it. How are you doing? Uh, doing good. It's uh, I'm, I'm in Texas and uh, yeah, it's uh, 70 degree Spring, yeah, it definitely feels like uh, spring here. The uh, the cold weather, that weird cold snap, uh, is behind us, and and hopefully some root cause problem solving and countermeasures are still to come. Um, Adam Zach is our special guest today. He is a mutual friend of mine and Jamie's. We'll talk a little bit about the work Adam does, but more importantly, we're going to hang out. We're going to talk shop. We're going to have a little whiskey. So, Adam, how's it going for you today? Well. Thanks for having me on this evening. It's going great. I'm in Naples, Florida. Weather's terrific. Spring break has hit, so the the madness at the beaches is all around us, although in Naples, not so much. Uh, But the weather's terrific. Uh, Suffered a little bit of a loss today because the Illini went down to Loyola, unfortunately. So for me, March madness has pretty much ended. No reason to watch at this point. But we do have some relatives living in some of the other towns, so yeah, maybe able to resurrect that after all. Do you good have to be well, is, is, Irish, is, good to be drinking some Irish whiskey tonight? That's all. <laughs> is is Loyola now your favorite team, or is, is somebody? Loyola, actually, uh, I have uh, two nieces and one nephew that went there, so we have we have some family ties. But uh, at the end of the day, I I was born and raised in Illini, so whatever. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry. I mean, I my Northwestern Wildcats, another Illinois yeah. team, uh, is still stuck on one tournament appearance four years ago. They made it to the second round and uh, and, and and lost to Gonzaga, but um, eh, so it goes. But um, the uh, the Northwestern women are in the tournament, so I've got time oh, sure. carved out tomorrow to watch them. And, and that's still a chance. The, yeah, the, the Lehigh the Lehigh women are in. Um, and uh, we don't make it often. We had two upsets to go in to, to make it to the big dance. So I believe they play tonight. Um, so we'll we'll see how that goes. And um, but usually don't get to root for them except for the Lehigh Duke upset from years ago. Uh, so I'll I'll be pulling for one of my other alma maters, Michigan. But uh, a lot of a lot of Big Ten here on the call. Um, yeah, you sure. see that. Rough day for the Big Ten. Wisconsin lost as well. Michigan State lost the play-in. Don't call it a play-in game, but they lost the other night. So yeah. I can take take joy in the Ohio State loss, though. That's uh, Ohio State lost also. Yeah, weird. No that's tier. why they call it. That's why they call it March Madness. And Mar- uh, another form of March Madness passed this past week, and this turns out to be totally coincidental. When Jamie and Adam and I were brainstorming a theme and we thought we haven't done Irish whiskey yet, we were originally going to record this a week later, but still March, St. Patrick's Day, Irish whiskey. I mean, I, I even put on a green shirt, even though it's a couple you days did? Ago. Awesome. Yeah, I, I did not put on a green shirt. And 
Yeah, yeah, certainly it was March, but uh, you know, perhaps it was the fact that it was going to be a little later, a few, you know, a couple of weeks away from St. Patrick's Day. Uh, but yeah, we never seemed to make the connection. We chose Irish whiskey because we hadn't done it yet. Um, and I actually had to go go buy some. But uh, yeah, we're just a few days past uh, St. Patrick's Day. Not that not that St. Patrick's Day is historically historically a day of drinking. <laughs> Um, but at least in most of our lifetimes, it has become one. So, well, we had so some on. green, we had some green cookies on St. Patty's Day, and my son, who now lives in a high rise overlooking the Chicago River, sent me a picture of the green waters um, on that day. So we celebrated, yeah. but no, no Irish whiskey that day. Well, I did have a little bit that day. Um, so maybe we'll just transition to what we're talking about today. I had some. Um, Red Breast, which is um, a favorite Irish whiskey, um, as I've gotten into that a little bit um, in, in recent years. That's not what I'm drinking today. I'll share about that. I'll go last, maybe. So, um, Adam, you're our guest. Why don't you take a minute and tell us what you're drinking and, and why? All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to go first. I must tell you that I consider myself still pretty much of a, a whiskey novice. So I had to do a little bit of research to come up with my selection. And I picked Tullamore. In fact, the, the uh, specific one is called Tullamore DEW, which is an 18 year old single malt. Now, again, not being an expert, I had to rely on a variety of reviews. And I will tell you that um, it was attractive because it said that it's triple distilled this is on the label, I think, aged in uh, casks or barrels that used to be used for making bourbon. And then they finish it for at least six months in a combination of Oloroso sherry butts, port pipes and Madeira drums. And now that's supposed to create the magic that I've poured out of this bottle. Um, and so far, I can tell you that my opinion is I really like it. Um, apparently the, uh, the finish is rich and warming, according to the distiller, and it has this lingering uh, malty sweetness, which is intertwined with cinnamon, baked apple, and biscuit sweetness. You know, those are pretty fancy words. I'm sure he's not wrong, but for me, wow, the stuff just tastes really great, and I'm fine with that. Well, and look, we're not whiskey experts. We Sometimes we, we don't go much beyond, hey, do you like it or not? So <laughs> cheers. I've also, um, I've also learned that I like it with ice rather than with a splash of water. Okay. Well, hey, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of drink it the way you like it. Yep. Um, but yeah, that mix of those different wine finished barrels probably creates um, a nice complexity. I haven't had that oh, Tullamore smooth. before, so I'll, I'll, I'll look out uh, for that one. So, well, good. Glad you're enjoying that. Now, one thing I will add, like triple distilled is one distinguishing characteristic of Irish whiskey, like American whiskeys and scotch um, are typically double distilled. And there, there are pros and cons. There are some who say the triple distilling creates a nice uh, smoothness. And then the downside of that, some would say it strips out some of the flavor because that's bound to happen with the extra distilling. Yep. But teach their own. That's right. Yep. Um, Jamie, what what did you scamper out to buy? What do you enjoy? Yeah, so so I actually happen to be uh, uh, I've happened to be empty with ter in terms of Irish whiskey on my shelf. So I needed to do some restocking anyway. So I got I got some Green Spot, 
um, which, you know, Yellow Spot uh, from the same maker has always been my, one of my favorites, especially in the Irish whiskey category. You know, if I if I find Yellow Spot, I'm definitely snapping it up. But sometimes, you know, sometimes hard to find. It would tend to be a uh, Amsterdam airport uh, purchase for me. <laughs> um, but what was interesting about Green Spot, which, you know, I, I, I'm not even I don't think I've ever even had a bottle of Green Spot. It's been more I'm in a. I'm in a bar and they have this, and it seems to be the most interesting. But this is a special edition. Um, th they work with uh, Chateau Montalena, which is in Napa Valley, but mm -hmm. it's of Irish heritage. And, and so, you know, a family that, that started it came over from, from Ireland. And so they worked together and essentially aged, uh, aged the green spot, the traditional green spot in, um, uh, in some Zinfandel uh, barrels. Um, and, you know, it certainly affected the color. Uh, not entirely easy to tell unless you know green spot, but it's definitely uh, got some richness and a little more uh, Zin color than, than perhaps traditional green spot. Um, but but it, I think it's added some complexity. It's, it's added some smoothness, a little bit of fruit. And um, yeah, I, I, it's definitely better than just off the shelf green spot, um, which which isn't bad. It's not right. I, I don't, not green spot. I like it. I just don't usually seek out a bottle. But this this is a bottle I would buy again. Um, mm -hmm. I, I enjoy the distinct differences from the traditional green spot purchase. So, um, yeah, fan. And just for for our listeners' sake, the you know the, the green spots were you know they would mark barrels with dots of ink. Um, and, and essentially took a practice that was really just how they stored and marked and kept track of their barrels and turned it into a brand. And so they have red, blue, green, and yellow uh, spot. Um, uh, but uh, green spot's probably the easiest to find. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, I, I was reminiscing a little bit. I think like Jameson's on the rocks. Like when I was in my twenties, that was the first whiskey oh. I really drank. That was sort of a go-to um, out with friends. And then, you know, I kind of moved into scotch for a while. Then I really got into bourbon and now I kind of, you know, I bounce around. I like all kinds of different whiskeys. Um, I'm going to hold up before I talk about the one I'm really drinking tonight, an honorable mention, if you will, one, a brand that I discovered when I had a chance to go visit Dublin about a year and a half ago, I had a chance to speak at a hospital and go and visit. And since all three of us are published authors, I think Jamie and Adam will appreciate this. The brand is called Writer's Tears. Ooh. <laughs> I have heard of that. I have not had it, though. Yeah. So um, have you yeah, tried just, it? Have you tried it, Mark? Uh, I've had it before. And there are a couple. Of, this is sort of the. Um, the basic, and it's a mini bottle, of course, uh -huh. um, Writer's Tears Whiskey. Uh, there, there are a number of different expressions, and uh, I tried some of them, different barrel finishes and ages over there. Uh, but in, in terms of introductions, and we gave Adam a little bit of short shrift. Um, is that the phrase? Short shrift? Yes, I believe so. We shorted um, Adam a little bit. So, Adam, you co-authored a book, if you want to tell everybody about that book. With yeah, the, the, the book literature. was... Yeah, the book was actually uh, came out in uh, late 2010. It's called Simple Excellence, Aligning, Organizing and Aligning the Management Team in the Lean Transformation. And, you know, about that time, uh, people were kind of looking at uh, 
I'm going to say lean 2.0. A lot of people had already experimented with lean transformation with some degree of success, although most probably with not all that much. And I think it was a time to tell our readers and the lean community that, that lean isn't really about magic. It's about doing the kinds of things that you would do in your own home, in your own life uh, to, to improve things. I mean, how many, how many guys uh, do we know that go out on the golf course and, and take a lot of practice swings so they can get better on the, on the, uh, on the links? How many people go up and fix up their garage or, or uh, their, their kids toys and organizing? It just made a lot of sense that people should organize their work around the, the ways that they would organize their lives. And so we tried to relate a lot of business situations and examples to what you would do as an individual uh, with your family, with your friends, with your colleagues. And so we tried to simplify it. And that's really the whole idea behind the, the simple excellence uh, genre. And I don't know if it worked or not. I, I still see a lot of lean successes, but I also seen some people doing it the third and fourth time. Um, and keep saying that they're going to get it right eventually. I'm, I'm not sure what the problems are. <laughs> that that would be a whole conversation in and of itself. Yes, it would. Yeah. Um, and 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 speaking of podcasts, and here I'll just look this up. Um, we did a lean podcast together about the book when it came. We out, did, right? Yeah. So I'll I'll try to I'll look up the uh, episode number. I don't know why I can find, but in the the Lean Blog Interviews podcast, um, Adam and I had a, a pretty good conversation. We'll we'll put that in the show notes. We'll put a link to that episode. Great, um, great. there. So what I'm drinking today, and this goes in the category of uh, kind of one of a kind bottles that I'm really going to appreciate because once it's gone, I'm never going to have this exact same whiskey again. So it's it's always bittersweet, but it's special tapping into that. So I'm going to hold up the bottle. This is wow. from the Teeling Distillery, which um, is uh, I, I had a chance to go and visit and do the tour. So Dublin proper used to have um, a really strong um, distilling whiskey industry presence there. And then for different reasons, those distilleries went out of business and uh, Jameson's and, and the handful of uh, distilleries that survived kind of moved out into other parts of the country. Well, Teeling was re kind of was, was started, um, says since 2015. And, um, so this is, and, and so there's a catch, right? It started in 2015. It's an 11 year Irish whiskey. It's like, well, wait a minute. So how do you have, oh. so they, they purchased some whiskeys, but they also had a stock of whiskey. Um, the dad used, so it's kind of a relaunch. So they had old stock of the previous, iteration of the company and now they're distilling and aging and blending and, and coming all together. So this is a single malt whiskey. It is um, sherry cask finished and it is 59.8% alcohol by volume. So it's a, it's a, it's a really rich, chewy whiskey. But the, the one other thing that was cool about it and probably throw a photo into the show notes at the visitor center, I had a chance to actually bottle this directly from a barrel. And so it, it, it also go into that single, not just single malt, but single barrel. And literally, you know, once that bottle uh, was gone, that is the end of it. So I figured this was a special enough occasion to crack that open 
and bring it back. This bottle itself weighs, I think, like 15 pounds. That was yeah. not the easiest thing to bring back in a suitcase. That looks hefty. That makes it even more <laughs> special. That bottle's not going to get thrown away. Yeah, you've done a few of few of those experiences. You certainly have gotten around to more more of these than than I have. And you know, I, I've I've always wanted to do a little uh, a little whiskey tourism, but um, even even my trips to Scotland ended up so busy that I, I couldn't couldn't break away for a single single tour. Um, but yeah, nice when you get those opportunities to to go visit. I don't look my, forward my to. My experience has always been whatever you can pick up at the airport on the way back is is what you're going to wind up tasting because you just don't have the time when you're out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, not a bad option anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was in Dublin, I I forced a day, uh, and I toured the Guinness facility in addition to the uh, the Teeling Distillery. I, I prefer my beer distilled into whiskey, mm-hmm. but Guinness is its own special thing. Yeah, I was I. I I did a. I ended up with a tour day in 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 Dublin at, during one of my several visits, and you know, f- for some reason, I decided, you know, it, it it's just Guinness, <laughs> even though I, I do prefer the beer. And so I f- I focused on St. Patrick's Cathedral and Trinity, um, uh, and and some of the other uh, more I'll say historical, <laughs> but maybe. Uh, not as fun uh, visits, and you can you can I mean you can see most of Dublin in one day. It's uh, it really is quite a quite a small, well known big city, if you will. That's what the Irish I, I was visiting. They said you know spend a day in Dublin and then go and see the rest of the country. Now that's the one thing I did not take the time to do, but but again someday. Yeah, someday when we can travel again. Right. Exactly. So, all right. So we've we've talked whiskey. We're going to continue sipping and enjoying our spirits, but we're going to talk about some news stories. And since Adam, and we'll let him tell a little bit more about his work, Adam is an executive recruiter. I think Adam is known for being very lean focused. And within the last 12 months, and we'll give credit to Adam for highlighting this, um, you know, we're going to talk about three cases, maybe more, um, but in particular, three cases where really well-known big American companies have hired new CEOs. Um, so we'll have a chance to talk about what are some of the challenges they're facing and, you know, how do you know, we'll, we'll get to pick Adam's brain on this. Um, how do you determine if somebody is a right fit, especially if they're brought in um, from the outside? So the, the three cases highlighted just to give a quick overview and then we'll take a little bit deeper dive um, Carol Tomei, who was hired um, as new CEO of UPS. She was hired from the outside. Rosalind Brewer is now the CEO of Walgreens. She was also hired uh, away uh, from Starbucks. And uh, Jane Frazier, who's now the CEO of Citigroup, and, and she was there internal um, to Citigroup. And, and, and you know, as it turned out, um, these are you know three Women, there. If we're keeping count, there's now 41 of the Fortune 500 CEOs um, are women. Um, another drugstore chain, CVS, um, just hired Karen Lynch as um, the CEO there, and um, so there, there's still quite an imbalance. That wasn't really, I think, the main point of bringing all that up, but um, still an imbalance that's being addressed. And uh, Rosalind Brewer is the only Black woman who is the CEO of a Fortune. 500 company. But 
before kind of diving into you know some of the articles and case examples here, Adam, how you know how would you characterize you, the work that that you have done and and the work that you do? I should have let you just talk about it instead of doing it myself. Oh no, that's fine. The uh, I guess what what uh, how I came up with this theme is that I, I specialize in recruiting executives who are either senior level operations people or senior level operational excellence. So. Um, both of those are the kinds of roles that drive change. And I've always been focused, well, I've been focused on lean for almost 20 years of executive recruiting. And what's becoming more and more important is that it's really not about the lean. It's about creating an environment where you can make the right business decisions and drive the kind of change that sustains the organization for the long term and serves all the stakeholders. And I think that's becoming a lot more important. We're noticing that. I think it's always been important, but now it's 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 risen visibly to the surface. And what's interesting is if you really look at an organization that's bringing in or promoting a CEO, that individual is really the, the primary change agent for the organization because they're the person who uh, really uh, builds the vision and, and communicates it. Um, sets the sort of overall strategy of the organization, and then the rest of the executive team um, aligns with that, and that's how the business does what it's going to do from that point on. Sometimes that's radically different from what the predecessor did. You can take GE when they brought Larry Culp in. It was a radical departure from uh, what Jeff and the and the fellow Flannery, I think, who followed him were doing. So that's a massive change. And of course, Culp has uh, credentials to do that and experience because of running Danaher for so many years. Uh, but in any event, every CEO is the chief change agent. And I think if we remember that and we get a good one, then everything else falls into place. If you get a bad one or the wrong one, then you've probably wasted your money and your time. Very so cool. these are, you know, three, three examples, um, you know, Citigroup, CVS, UPS, you know, no, no company, they, they all have strong, a strong history. No company is on their deathbed. These aren't really, you know, turnaround situations, but what they need to do over the next five years is likely all different than what they did in the last five to 10. Um, and, and, and so, you know, they're all facing a very different future than, than what they, what their past, you know, what the trajectory of their past would take them in. Um, I, I do think the most, you know, the most obvious perhaps, uh, uh, well, all these are pretty obvious when you start to look at some of their history, but, uh, you know, when you look at Rosalind Brewer coming from, you know, Starbucks and their service culture and, uh, serving on the board of Amazon and their service culture, uh, it, it says an awful lot about where Walgreens thinks they need to go. But, you know, this is sort of a question of, uh, and this, this would apply to any leader, but, you know, applies to, you know, uh, voting for presidents all the way to, you know, finding new CEOs. But, but how much do you, how much do you hire somebody or select somebody based on the known problems that you're trying to solve versus the, the 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 ones that you're not that you haven't yet seen uh, it, it certainly seems like some of these selections are based on the known problems uh, but certainly they have track record for leadership so maybe that's all good for the problems you don't know either 
that are coming. So I'm well, Adam. A, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you. I mean, from your experience as a recruiter, how important is it to hire for quote unquote fit? I'm going to think of like a parallel. The NFL draft will be coming up uh, in a couple of months. Do, you know, do, do, does a team draft a player for fit, or do you take the best available player on the board? Well, that's that's kind of an interesting question, and I think it goes directly to what the board has to understand uh, about the person that they need to hire for that specific role. Because uh, in the U.S., the estimates are that something like thirty to forty percent of all CEOs, new CEOs, fail within the first 18 to 24 months. And, you know, the risks we're talking about here, I think the first one is pretty obvious that you're gonna find and put into place the wrong person. Um, And I think the bigger risk is, at least initially when you're first starting out, is that you're going to reject the right person because of your biases, which are often rooted in what the business has always been and what the business has always done and what the business requires in the future. You tend to think, Uh, in a linear fashion about the role and the person that needs to come into it, where sometimes the chaos is just so massive that you you really need to understand what is the nature of the job you're hiring for today, but also how is that job and therefore the requirements of the person who's doing it, how are those going to change over time? And so that brings up actually a number of issues. For instance, uh, do you want a person who's been a CEO before? Or are you willing to bet on someone who's ready to be the first time CEO? And that's that's a tough question. Do you want to go internally only or externally or a combination? And then the specific experience, you know, you can go with somebody who has current or recent industry experience, but then do they come in with a fresh pair of eyes? Or it could be a related industry. So that may give them a little different perspective. And obviously the freshest point of view is someone who comes in totally from outside the industry. But then, and this goes to Jamie's point, is that person going to fit in? Because before they can become an effective change agent, they have to create a buy-in around them, around their agenda and their vision, or the people that they want to lead are simply not going to follow. And that's what makes this so tough. And that's why every one of these is so unique, because of that challenge, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, think of that 18 to 24 month failure rate. I'm going to draw a sports analogy again. It seems like there are many more cases of NFL teams firing a head coach after two seasons or even just one season. They're like, you know, yeah. we gave this coach a chance Psh, out. But is that, a, you know, is the business world more impatient? Well, I can answer that by saying yes and yes. And It's unfortunate that sometimes a person who is identified early on as a failure will be allowed to continue in the role because the board doesn't want egg on its face. You know, every single one of those board members is a former CEO or even sometimes current CEO or senior executive of another very large company. They don't want to look like they made a mistake because that casts a doubt on their judgment. Mm. So we see situations where, unfortunately, uh, the situation isn't fixed in a timely fashion. And so it you know, drives the company further down. Now, there are other situations where uh, they take their lumps and they move ahead uh, with a new person. That takes guts and not, not a lot of companies want to do that. And, and so, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's ever a right answer. 
Um, I think the, the most important thing you can do is just prepare the ground, the fertile ground right up front before you do the transplant. And that means, you know, there's standard work involved in the process of recruiting a CEO. And if you don't follow it, if you take a shortcut, um, if, if you, you know, if you don't do that last final senior level reference check, uh, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in this at, the, at this level. And at that person's level, the leverage on the whole organization is so tremendous that you really have to, I, th- I think you just really have to understand what you're doing and, and um, you know, just do the due diligence, uh, yeah. dig deeply. I think the, uh, you know, the situation, the context of the situation has, you know, certainly a lot to do with that patient's you know, when you when you look at a turnaround situation, right? You you may not be able to give somebody eighteen months, right? If it's really if times are really desperate, we've we've seen um, you know in the soccer world where where okay. where most teams when they uh, if they don't do well enough, they get demoted, right? They don't just have a bad season; they end up in a different league, and and so the consequences of a poor season and finishing poorly are are, are pretty significant. Um, so we've seen sometimes, you know, you get 10 games to turn it around and then you're going to go grab somebody else. But, but these three cases, you know, again, none of these companies are, are, are at death's door. I think they can, you know, they know they want to transform, but they're being proactive about it. Uh, and they're trying to, you know, set, set up the future, um, of, of where they're going. And I think these selections, say an awful lot about, about where they want to go. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about the UPS one uh, in terms of what it says about where they want to go. I think that that is worth some, some analysis, but, but I, I certainly think Walgreens, when you look at, uh, when, when you look at where Starbucks has been, where Amazon has been along with, of course, the leadership capabilities that, that she's, demonstrated in a very public way. Um, you know, this is sort of a company that needs to not just find its heart again, but then, mm-hmm. you know, build itself into the future, including things like digital, uh, which was, you know, mentioned about some of the, the history with Starbucks, but you know, getting more into a digital transformation certainly is, is part of it, but by no means the limits of, of, of finding, finding the right fit for their strategy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know anything about the drugstore industry, but you look at Walgreens and CVS, they're often located across the street from each other. They're both pretty ubiquitous now in the United States. I'd, I'd be curious, um, you know, think of Rosalind Brewer's background at Starbucks. Like there are people who love Starbucks. Like there is this emotional connection and loyalty that goes beyond a loyalty points program. Like there are people who really love Starbucks. I, I, I'm I'm curious if there is anybody out there who really loves Walgreens or CVS or you just get locked in because like, well, it's just easier to refill my prescription than it is to move it. And is there an opportunity? Like, I don't know. Is that required in the drugstore space for somebody to say, oh, I love Walgreens? I don't think it's required, but I, I do think that there is, you know, it's it, it becomes more than just a transaction, whether it's based on trust or enjoyment or relationship. Um, but you look in, in my neck of the woods where I live, uh, and, and I know they're, they're, they're pen- they've penetrated at least part of where Adam lives, but Wawa is, you know, just 
it's just a convenience store with gas stations, right? I mean, it's how exciting is that? But yet the passion around Wawa and the relationship people have around Wawa, whether it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's okay coffee. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the passion around getting Wawa coffee is different than, you know, 7-Eleven or, you know, just about any Exxon station you can get it at. So it, it's, I, I do think it's possible to build a more emotional connection, whether it's, it's probably not the same as Starbucks, but still build an emotional connection to something that is fundamentally a fairly transactional yeah. type of type of market. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll try to frame it in a lean perspective is, you know, part of the value as defined by the customer, the, the quality of the coffee, the quality of the experience, or in a way like the feeling that you get from it. Um, there, there, there are times where I will gladly overpay for a cup of coffee at a place that's not Starbucks because like, oh, they're doing the fancy pour over thing in front of me. And there, there's this different experience and it's uh, artisan or whatever you might want to call it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I guess I find value in that that goes beyond the drink itself. Here in Florida, we have CVS, we have Walgreens, and also a very strong regional grocery chain called Publix. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is, particularly during this COVID time, how these pharmacies have responded to customers' desperate needs for vaccines. Mm -hmm. The effort that went into designing the website that they set up, especially for registering uh, for uh, for the vaccines, the ease with which the user could make make that registration happen. I mean, that that generates, Jamie, going back to what you said about trust based on the customer experience. I, I would agree that the customer service, the customer experience of that, I think converted many people from Walgreens and from CVS to Publix, because they did a bang up job. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you look at the prescription business itself, and by the way, for Walgreens, that's almost three quarters of their gross of their gross annual revenue in the United States. They also have some distribution business, some wholesale and other things, but really that's, that's the bulk of their earnings. Um, they're filling the same prescription. Yes, there are differences in price, and obviously some people are obligated based on their insurance plans, which again is not necessarily lean healthcare, or in anyone's best interest, but they're obligated. And, and yet many people will choose to go and pay a little higher copay at Publix because th this is a family-run business. They hire locally. They, they have a policy of hiring and developing um, minority employees, people with disabilities. They have huge benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, one of Starbucks, uh, for instance, is they offer an undergraduate degree online at ASU for any of, of their uh, employees. Well, Publix has been doing that for a long time. So mm. in the community itself, they've generated just a tremendous amount of loyalty and just very positive feelings. So people love that. If you think about it, that's the feeling that Roz has to instill within the people who are delivering the customer service to customer mm. value at Walgreens. Mm. And it's a big job. So when you talk about Publix, when um, I lived in Orlando, I thought people just loved like, what is it? The chicken tender sub. Mm. <laughs> I thought that you was the that. main. 
<laughs> I never I never ate one of those because I don't know that's not really too many too diet. many carbs, Mark. Too not many really carbs. on my diet, but um, <laughs> but Publix does engender um, a loyalty and a fan base. You know, there there were Wawa's in Orlando, and you're right, Jamie. People feel that way about Wawa, like especially in Philadelphia oh, yeah. when I was oh, doing yeah. work in Philly. Um, but Publix, in a way, reminds me uh, when I when I was in grad school in Rochester, New York, Wegmans is famous for having like this really rapidly loyal fan base for being another, um, you know, relatively high end grocery store chain. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting to see when organizations create that. Yeah. And it's, and it's certainly, you know, it, 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 it's certainly her opportunity to build that with Walgreens, um, you know, build that same kind of thing. It, it is interesting, you know, this is, also her first full, you know, standalone CEO gig, which is, you know, really a chance for her to, uh, not that she doesn't have a massively impressive career, but to really put an exclamation mark on, on that career um, as a CEO and, and what can Walgreens become? Is it going to be fundamentally different when she's done with it? And certainly her track record suggests that it will be. Um you know, in a similar vein, right, with Carol going to CEO, I believe this is her first, you know, CEO gig and mm-hmm. yeah. um, coming out of the CFO ranks, which isn't uh, isn't isn't uh, uh, terribly uncommon. Um, but to go into a company of UPS's size from another industry and not already known as sort of a turnaround CEO is a pretty big, pretty big jump. And and they don't have you know again they're, they're not they're not a death store but with Amazon basically replacing them mm. with where their build out they have a, a massive yeah. strategic challenge ahead of them from an asset base all the way to you know uh, to pricing to service everything else there's a lot of work to be done at what is the UPS of the future so it's yeah. an interesting choice. So you give the rundown of the the three new CEOs. You know, Adam had asked a question earlier. You know, outsider versus insider. You've got two outsiders. Um, Jane Frazier was promoted from within at Citigroup. Um, have you been a CEO before? The answer was no. But Roz Brewer was CEO of Sam's Club, a business yeah. unit yeah. Right. within Walmart, right. and and Jane Frazier was a, a Latin American regional president. Um, but but Adam, you know, throw a question back to you. Um, I'm, I'm curious from your experience, how have you seen executives make the leap from being, let's say, a business unit P&L leader to being a standalone CEO of a separate company? I think it works for those that understand that they finally have to let go of their skills and focus on their capabilities. So to take a common example on the shop floor, right, you might have a piece of metal And you can take that metal and take another piece of metal and they they join. But you can do that in different ways. So you can be a welder or maybe you are an expert with adhesives. And so you can stick them together or maybe you use rivets. Right. So the, the riveting and the welding and the adhesion stuff, those are skill sets. But the capability is to understand what is the problem that we're trying to solve. And the problem is we're trying to join two pieces of metal. 
And you have to understand the skills that are available. You have to understand the technology that's available, the joining that can be done by, by welding or by, by adhesion or, or by riveting. But you also have to be open to the idea there might be a technology that we don't know about yet. And you have to have the willingness to admit that the way we've done things in the past using those three technologies may not be the right way. And you have to have the guts to ask questions. So a lot of people call this humility to, to find out to surround yourself people who will help you find those answers that you don't have and then allow you to make an informed decision and set that direction and the strategy and then guide the execution. I think you just have to, it's, it's like anything else in life. You have to let go of stuff that you've been really, really good at for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in Carol's case, she's been a really good CFO and operating manager for a long time. I think we could say the same thing about Roz. She's been terrific at operations. She's great at digital. She's She understands retail. She understands the retail footprint. When she was at Sam's Club, she spent a lot of her time on not some, certainly not pharmaceuticals, but health and beauty and those kinds of issues, which again is a part of Walgreens business. Can they leave behind what they need to? And can they segue into a role where they truly become that strategic thinker and leader for the whole organization? Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a quote from Jane uh, uh, Frazier that, that that fits that. And she says, and in terms of curiosity, if you're not asking lots of questions and you're not really engaging with people and you're curious about the world, which I think is you know, the biggest part of that, I think you miss a lot of different things. Right. And, and that, you know, that that I think is really essential for, you know, really distinguishes the CEO role from perhaps others, because Yes, you have a board, but they all have different opinions. They're not, they're, they're not, they're as much there to judge you as they are to help you. And uh, uh, in, in a lot of ways, you, you need to, you need to open your aperture and, and, and see the world. Um, uh, and your, your team can help you, but only if you let them. You know, one other thing, Jamie, that uh, something you said sort of brought this to light or brought this to top of mind for me, which is that, the other thing that people need to recognize is that as CEO, that's really where the buck stops. We're not talking about stakeholders, and, and that's a very broad spectrum. Investors are critical. Analysts are critical. Your banking relationships, your vendor relationships. Um, at an operating level, yes, you may have some of that, but the, the C, at the CEO level, you've really got to step up your game because everything is visible Everything you do is noticed. Everything you do will is people will consider it like you're modeling this behavior for them to follow. Um, it's it's uh, sometimes funny how a person will say something off camera, if you will. An aide picks it up, and pretty soon it's all over the company that you know the CEO mm. likes black cherry flavored uh, marmalade on his coffee uh, with his coffee on toast on Thursday mornings, but only on Thursday mornings. And you know this is this is insane, but this you are just in a, such a position to affect for good or maybe not so good uh, things that are going on in the company, in the community, in the investor community, and certainly now with with uh, diversity and inclusion, and you know bringing people in from. Uh, people who maybe over over the years have not been as included. You, everyone's watching, and you really have to focus on being the best possible leader. Understanding you'll make mistakes, but with humility, mm -hmm. uh, you know, hopefully you can get through it. 
Well, I'm just going to tell a quick story. I mean, this is from the healthcare realm. This is not Fortune 500 CEO land. But Adam, to your point of, you know, people watch the CEO and sometimes the CEO doesn't realize the weight of their position. So there there was a time I was moderating a panel. You might have been there in the audience, Adam, at one of the Lean Healthcare Transformation Summits where one of the hospital CEOs was talking about a time he was doing a Gemba visit in the hospital cafeteria. And he made an offhanded comment about he didn't like peas. I guess that was on the menu that day. And he learned like two or three years later, they had literally stopped serving peas in the cafeteria. So his expression of, hey, I'm just connecting with people and I'm expressing a personal preference got misinterpreted as a mandate of, you know, you don't serve peas in the cafeteria. And uh, you know, I thought it was a, that was a really interesting reflection on his part. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think as you look at these these new leaders coming in, you know, I'm, I'm sure I, I had this happen where I've, I recently working with somebody and there's a new chairman of their organization who has a very specific track record. And we've already had the conversation. What does their track record mean for what's coming to their to their business. So, you know, Carol's an interesting example where, you know, at Home Depot, of course she was CFO for so long, she really had every experience there is. Like 18 years. 18 years, yeah, like, I mean, that's a tremendous tenure. Uh, but one of those experiences, which is just inevitable over that time frame, is having to close stores. And um, and she 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 does talk about that, but you kind of what what hints about her past are folks at UPS starting to pay attention to before she has a chance to really you know set and communicate a strategy and and as 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 she comes in because again is a company that needs a needs a different strategy uh, with with what's going on around them uh, if if they're not going to. Uh, fall by the wayside the way, you know, FedEx has, has started to do. Well, I, I think to your point, exactly. She's made it pretty clear. Uh, and I think her experience back at Home Depot would indicate that she understands that bigger is not better for its own sake. Yes. And growth for its own sake is is not growth at all. It's, it's you're creating a mess, you're creating chaos. It's like, sure, we can we can sell a whole bunch of stuff but at the end of the day, if every sale is not profitable, why, why are we doing that? And so her experience has been in a, in a similar vein to what UPS is trying to do is to utilize asset utilization. Uh, we have all these stores or in UPS's case, uh, locations and airplanes and, and other things. So um, and UPS used to I mean, they they we're going to buy another bunch of airplanes for some reason or other, and then they'd have to fill them. And so to fill them, they'd have to use, uh, essentially go out and find less pricey cargo to ship. So they might even take locks leaders just to send out a full airplane. Well, the, the, the same thing was true with Home Depot. They found out that they were, they had so many stores and they were selling products or yeah, they, they had a whole bunch of products that they had on stock in stock in inventories that were not moving. She got rid of that stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, this is basic common sense, business blocking and tackling, but you have to pay attention to the details. You have to want to know, you have to want to look, uh, what is that, Shook's book, Learning to See? It's all in front of you, but you've really got to be able, I think you've just got to have that courage to do that. Because 
when when you start removing little bits and pieces, pretty soon you find yourself you're actually attacking a strategic issue. Um, and it only becomes clear once you start digging. And I think that's very important. And UPS, uh, you know, the stories around uh, the holiday season where they were turning down certain shipments from customers who were trying to send excess shipments through the system. Uh, where they were not renewing contracts because it was unprofitable business. Mm -hmm. They got rid of the whole uh, less than truckload business because that didn't make any sense for them at all uh, because they're, they're not in that business. But knowing what business you're in is critical. And then that comes again to the, the vision that the CEO has to, to shepherd and to marshal. But that often comes from being someone who came up through operations, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like, from you know the one article uh, about Carol Tomey coming in from Home Depot to UPS, uh, it sounded like she really tried to understand operations. So she talked about putting on an apron, working in the store, like you know that for, to in lean terminology that sounds like um, going to the Gemba. Um, you know Toyota is famous for sending um you know people in salaried roles to go work the assembly line for some period of time so they can really yeah. understand that perspective so i mean you know she talks about not just speaking the language of finance but speaking the language of the business that seems like an important thing that that could apply to a a cio not just speaking it speak but again speaking the language of the business right and and i'm curious adam do you find are there times when somebody who is in one of those other CXO roles struggles in transitioning from being kind of a, you know, a silo chief to being uh, a broader business leader? It seems like that, that could be a challenge uh, yes. leap. Yes, they do. And the single biggest reason for that is that many of them have gained most of their experience in a silo type organization. Um, and even working on cross-functional teams often doesn't, doesn't give you that opportunity. And, you know, as much as GE has been in the news over the years, both good and bad, uh, the GE that I knew way back when was, was really strong at developing people and moving them from this business unit or that division to another one. And the roles always change. So you got not just to work with other people that had been trained, you know, if you're a CPA, you were working with marketing people or tech people or uh, manufacturing people, you actually got to be a person of responsibility and authority in some of those roles. And that that's how you build the diversity into your own experience that allows you to, to do that kind of work. Unfortunately, if we have shorter term thinking companies, and we do have quite a few who are looking still at next quarter's earnings, that's a development expense uh, that they don't want to incur because you're really, really good at your job in marketing. You're really, really good at your job in supply chain. And, you know, if we let you go get some experience over there in marketing, we're going to suffer here. And, and, and I think what we really need to do is instill this um, mentality and incentive in the culture that a business unit leader is actually incentivized in some way to take his best people and build them. Mm. And I think that's also the, the sign, the mark of a great leader is when you are putting the organization and optimizing it and its future over your own personal functional silo needs and sending out your best people. And that will come back to reflect on you. He's a great mm. developer of people. Mm. She's a great developer of people. And you know what? 
that's the kind of organizational leadership that everyone looks for. And that's what gets you promoted too. So I think it's a win-win, but we just have to have the courage to take that step. And so often we don't. Yeah, I think that the, uh, you go look at some of those traits and, and, and start looking at Jane Frazier's situation with, with City. Um, now this is the first, first uh, female CEO of a mega bank. Right. And, and mm-hmm. you talk about a company that's, that's built on gathering assets. Right. I mean, this is a company that was, was uh, put together and put together and put together I mean, over, over the years. It's, I, I bet they have business units they don't even know exist anymore. But, uh, um, you know, incredibly complex. But, you know, one thing I'll say about the banking industry is, you know, you do get to run a line of business. Right. And, and so, it's not just you know your your CFO or your head of HR. Or you're you know running this support team. It's you know you get to run a business line, and um, varying levels of autonomy uh, depending on the bank culture. But in terms of performance and the expectation for performance, it's certainly there and certainly highly tested. Um, and and you know I I do this is a a market that's been, uh, you know, in many ways, testosterone driven, uh, going all the, you know, not going back to, but personified with Gordon Gecko and, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how many other movies, uh, encapsulate that. Um, but I, I do like another one of her, her quotes, which is, you know, how really the leadership needed in a business like that, which is, she says, I think the courage comes in being, in just being brutally honest about who you are. What are some of the challenges you personally have faced and being all as authentic and real about yourself as possible? Mm. And, uh, you know, that, 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 that says a lot about somebody who really knows who she is and, and coming into the organization and, and just tying that to something else she says, which is she's not there to, you know, fix what, uh, fix what's broken. Um, but, but really to transform it, which is a very different mindset, right? I like just, Fix yeah. the problem in front of me versus transform it to something new uh, really suggests a willingness and a courage to face whatever it needs to be, right? Not just get it back to where it was, not just close a specific gap, but like transform it to where it needs to go. Um, certainly sends, you know, plenty of signals in terms of her words that the uh, the city I leave behind uh, will be different than the one I, mm. <laughs> I came into the seat mm. with. Well, I think one, one other thing I wanted to highlight from the article about Roz Brewer, um, a couple of things she said. Um, one was, and, and this will sound like lean thinking, you know, listen at all levels. Some of the best ideas come from those on the front lines. And, you know, this is going back years ago, and some of this may have faded, but Starbucks really was putting a lot of effort into training baristas and store managers in practice, in lean practices so that they could continuously improve their own store particulars instead of everything being handed down um, in, you know, from a, you know, a process binder from Seattle headquarters. So I, I think it's great that she's emphasizing ideas from frontline staff. But then, you know, the article also highlighted, and I, I didn't realize this as somebody who frequents Starbucks um, a lot and is a fan, you know, so they were paying retail workers early on in the crisis, even if they didn't work. And so that reminds me of what Toyota does, 
when their factories are shut down because of part shortages or um, financial crisis or pandemic. Um, they'll pay their employees because they view those employees as, you know, um, you know, it's more of a long-term investment in um, in in the employees, and 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 so you know, I think that to me really makes very practical this idea of respect for people. It's easy to say, oh, we have a corporate value that says we respect people, but you know, it sounds like Starbucks was really trying to do the right thing for their employees, which I'm sure engendered a lot of loyalty to get those employees back quickly when they were opening up. And, um, you know, I only think those employees are more willing to go above and beyond and provide great service because the company treated them that way. There's, uh, there's actually, you know, your, your example here uh, reminds me of an interview that I did. I was doing a search for a vice president of continuous improvement. And one of the people I interviewed early on was a Starbucks executive who, mm -hmm who had actually worked with Roz and he recounted a story. And again, this is straight out of uh, Toyota because uh, when Roz initially joined Starbucks, one of the things she did was she, she wanted to work every job and she worked as a barista mm. for a few mm. days. Mm. I'm not sure which location specifically, but the story is that she was wandering around and digging into this operation and, you know, the front line, well, the front line is is often right behind that counter. And she apparently identified a major bottleneck because what was happening is in the customer drive-up line, customers would place an order. And then as they pulled over to pick up the order, they would also request water to go. Well, that took all the, the, the whole process was just thrown completely out of whack because the window person essentially needed to completely redo the order mm. to add just that one glass or two of water. So at the, at the shift end, Brewer suggested, uh, I was going to call it a Kaizen, he didn't, but she suggested mm -hmm. they get together for a brainstorming improvement. I think that's what she called it. Mm -hmm. And they came up, the team now, Roz didn't, but the team came up with the idea to add one single question to the script of the person taking the order. And that was a question. Would you like any water with that? Yes. Now, it's such a simple thing to do. And yet it was implemented rapidly at no cost, fully effective the next day, rolled out to the region. And eventually, I understand, became standard operating procedure for the business because of somebody noticing a bottleneck and then actually doing something about it. So again, it's go to the Gemba, sorry to use the, the lingo, but right. go to where the thing is happening, take a look at, and, and she had the courage to say, yeah, let's do it. And I think that's just terrific. And maybe that comes from the engineering background she brought to the table or some of the other things that she also comes to the table with. But I think it's just a great example of truly embracing some of those uh, lean concepts that Starbucks mm -hmm. Yeah, Starbucks has actually been doing that pretty well, I think, now for a while. Oh, well, I love it. And, and I think for this audience, Adam, you, you can use lingo like Kaizen and Gemba. I think it's okay. <laughs> yeah, um, is there any anything else anyone wants to highlight from the articles or, or the cases of these new CEOs? I'd like to just mention one thing. In the literature, uh, the reading that I've done about uh, Jane Fraser, it's interesting that Essentially, she's not deviating much from the game plan that both of her predecessors announced at the time that they became CEOs. Mm. So I'm I am 100% confident that she can make this happen. But I'm just looking to see what spin she's going to 
put on this to really dig into the systems and the processes that support um, how they do things and why they do things. And obviously, it's a high compliance regulatory environment. They get into trouble all the time. Recently, to the tune of I don't know how many million dollars Hundreds for uh, you know for a for, for a faulty wire transfer going to the wrong person. I mean, you can't do that. That's amateur league stuff. This this is. <laughs> This that is could not be the whiskey vinegar. talking. No, <laughs> well, could be, but you know what? They shouldn't be doing that. And I, I hope that she succeeds because that that is a storied American organization. I mean, I when I was doing work in Eastern Europe before the Berlin Wall fell, City had branches in East Berlin, West Berlin, Warsaw, Moscow. I mean, they were everywhere, and they served American and international interests. And I think they were probably the best bank in the world at that time. I want to see them return to those glory days and surpass those glory days. Mm-hmm. There, there, there are mistakes like, oops, the wrong, the wire transfer error. And then there are lapses of, you know, that article was talking about, um, you know, her, her having to try to clean up things in the Latin America business where they were accused of, you know, not policing money laundering well enough. And some of that now, is, is that a process issue or... Is that something else? But that that's um, important things for her to be focused yeah, on. Yeah, very much so. All right. So again, you know, we're going to have links to different articles about um, those new CEOs in the show notes. And, you know, those are three, not just huge companies, but big companies that a lot of us do business with. So we'll certainly wish them all the best in uh, in those roles. Absolutely. So I think a couple other things on the agenda before we wrap up, a listener question and a fun closing question. Jamie, do you want to hit us with the the listener question? We'll try to do this fairly quickly. Um, But uh, this was an actual question. This wasn't a a drop in or a sarcastic question. This was an actual question. Some of our listeners might be surprised by, but, but it's just where we are. And, uh, essentially, it was uh, this. Uh, do, do you think it's possible for a lean organization to do well with quality and safety? Uh, it seems here that lean is all about costs, and that doesn't seem right from, from what I've read. So Maybe here, meaning their organization. I think, th- I think that's what it refers to, is their organization seems like lean is all about cost. And certainly, by no means, the, the, it's not the only time we've heard that, uh, which is why uh, why this question, even though it's phrased in this in this somewhat extreme way, uh, appeals to us because it it, it it certainly is pretty common. Well, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll jump in. I, there are a number of times I've been brought in to a hospital to to give a talk or to do some sort of visit, and the problem statement is expressed by leadership as some form of saying, you know, we've been working with Lean for a couple of years, and the employees aren't really engaged in it. They don't seem really excited in it. And I mean, a couple of times it was following up a firm that I will not name right here. I haven't had enough whiskey to be that reckless. But this firm like quite literally turned lean into nothing but an identify cost savings exercise. Mm -hmm. And this firm made everybody identify like all the directors had to identify, you know, these these savings that were these these projects that were based, gauged and evaluated off of nothing but cost savings. And then the consulting firm would kind of say, well, okay, we've identified all this 
projected savings and they would whitewash their hands of it and then walk away. And so, well, I think the reason why people aren't really engaged here is that you and this consulting firm you've engaged with have completely made lean about cost, cost, cost. And I know I get on a soapbox about that, but you know, the, the subtitle of my book, Lean Hospitals, maybe to my own detriment, was improving quality, patient safety, and employee engagement. Would I have sold more copies if the word cost was in the subtitle? Maybe. But I mean, I think, you know, I'm preaching to the choir with the with the two of you in this audience that of course cost is important, but in any environment when we improve safety and quality and flow and customer delivery, better cost, better profitability follows. And so I, you know, I think it's unfortunate when I, you know, it's it's not just this theoretical straw man question. It is a real thing when organizations equate lean with cost cutting. And I it's it's unfortunate. Well, I think one of the, the you know the common reasons is fundamentally cost is easy to measure. Um, mm-hmm. It's you know it, it, it of course it does matter right, but it's easy to measure cost savings, especially if you have a more event driven lean journey. Um, then then you can calculate each event and you know add it all up, and it's pretty easy to do the math on. Uh, combined with the fact that if you have an expensive lean program. Um, which I, I think way too many companies do, whether it's external spending on consultants, you know, go get help, right? But but make sure you, you don't hire so much help that now you have to go save this many dollars just to pay for the help you got. You have to be sensible about that. So, so between the amount you invest, whether it's external resources, putting internal resources in place, spending cash for your lean journey, then where's the return on investment? Well, okay, got to show the dollars to show that return. So I think between just being an easy way to look at it, as well as a justification for, I think, what is often a too, too an expensive and a version of lean that many companies employ, uh, rather than a leader-led version, um, and then we end up in that trap. Yeah, Jamie, I think, and, and Mark, too, to, to your point, uh, I've always learned and I firmly believe that the root foundation, whatever you call it, of lean is about delivering customer value. And so we have to look at what is the customer valuing. And that equation means things like quality, it means things like delivery, speed, it means things like safety, and it means things like cost. All of those things together for the firm that's delivering value have to be in some balance that ultimately means value for the customer. I think the problem quite often is that we use the wrong lens. You see, cost is not the biggest factor. Cost is a result of looking at the other pieces and how they fit together and how well they fit together, because ultimately you're going to spend more or spend less on all of those things if you're not paying attention to the right lens. So I believe the lens initially, and I think, Mark, you wrote in this uh, about this in your conversations uh, and, and writings on, uh, was it Elaine, Elaine Belder, right, with, uh, with Alcoa, and the fact that he focused so much on with safety. Paul O'Neill, right. Yeah. And I'm sorry, that's right, Paul. And the function of cost, cost is a derivative. If you focus on safety, everything else falls into place. I mean, we saw this in COVID, uh, considerable considerable expense in many companies that were simply shut down because they couldn't adequately take care of 
their people, their people were were calling in sick, they were ill, they they had to shut down the business. So where's the cost savings in that? If you're not investing in protecting your people, um, this is this goes, you know, this is even more basic than keeping them engaged in your work. The idea is if you don't have safe and secure employment situation for people from a physical as well as a psychological sense of safety, you're going nowhere. And and the company is failing in its mission if it's if it's not doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. We we could talk a whole hour, especially a whiskey fueled hour about. Uh, <laughs> we 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 could about all of that. Um, yeah, I think the the key summary is you know be purposeful with your lean, um, and and uh, it, it it'll cure all of those sins. So, um, yeah. So so finishing with a, a fun question. Um, and uh, we've, we've bounced around with various different topics, but, but one we haven't covered is what have you been reading lately? Um, uh, before I share what I've been reading, I, I have to share that, you know, reading I always fit in uh, to, to my life in different ways. And so it used to be I would read on planes, right? Because I can't, you know, I can't work until 10,000 feet. So, so let, me, let me open up a book while we're, you know, once I get on the plane and and read at least until 10,000 feet, if not until when we land. And uh, that's where I got all my reading done. Well, I haven't flown since the first week of March last year. So that went out the window. And and what's interesting is uh, during COVID, I've done a lot of my reading outside on the porch and, mm. you know, kind of like I go out for the Saturday morning with a, with a French press and a book and, and go read. But it's we've had a pretty rough winter and I, I've kind of noticed my reading <laughs> consumption has gone down because it's been too dependent on going outside to go find a, you know, a good spot to read. So fortunately it's getting warm again, but next winter I may have to solve that problem in a, in a different way. So, um, so Mark, what have you been, what have you been reading lately? So literally reading today, I was reading a book written by a guy named Art Bell, who I'm going to be interviewing this week on my other podcast, one of my other podcasts, my favorite mistake. Um, Art Bell was um, the the creator of what became the Comedy Central Network. He was working at HBO, had an idea for uh, what became the Comedy Channel, and then that merged and became Comedy Central. And so he's written kind of a memoir about all of that and his experiences at Comedy Central. The the book that I was planning on, on talking about is sort of related to my favorite mistake. I was searching Amazon for books about business mistakes, and there are there are a couple of those. But I found this book. It's a children's book. It's called The Girl Who Never Made Mistakes. And in a nutshell, it's about this little girl who was really known in her town of like, that's the girl who never makes mistakes. And it got to the point, though, where she put too much pressure on herself to hold up that level of uh, perfection. And she was performing in the talent show and without blowing, you know, the whole story. I don't know if people should go read it. So it's a spoiler. Um, Something funny happens while she's performing at the school talent show. And she learns the lesson of, you know what? Life goes on. And I think that's an important lesson as um, a recovering perfectionist, even as an adult, that book resonated with me. And so it's a charming little book. Um, I had a chance, this episode has not been released yet, 
but I reached out to the author and illustrator of the book and we did a podcast episode together. He shared uh, a mistake from his career. And um, so that, that book was something that I, I don't normally read children's books as, as Mark Pett, the author and I said, that might be kind of creepy if I was normally doing that. I don't know. <laughs> But I had a good reason for reading that one. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, interesting choice. So, Adam, what about you? Well, uh, Jamie, to your point on uh, doing reading, I, I try to read probably first thing in the morning. And I normally read a book as opposed to a newspaper. In fact, I was an addict to the Wall Street Journal. It was the first thing I would do with coffee. Mm -hmm. And I began to realize that that's yesterday's news. And why am I filling my head with that when what I really should be doing is looking for new ideas, new perspectives, new ways of thinking. And the best way to do that is, I think, reading a book. It could be history. It could be something related to business. Uh, it could be related to continuous improvement, but not, you know, a how-to book, but rather the, the theory, the underlying philosophies that, you know, why are we doing any of this to begin with? And so um, I try to pick a couple books, maybe two or three a month. And I read first thing in the morning, usually for a couple of hours. Um, I do check email first because, you know, sometimes in business, something's there is a burning platform and you have to address it. But my selection, I think, is a, just a little bit different this time for me than some of the other ones. And it's a book called um, I Believe in People. Probably can't see that. It's too bright. And this no, was written by yeah one of the Koch brothers, um, Charles Koch, and also with a fellow uh, co-author, Brian Hooks. And the premise of the book is really pretty simple, but I think we've all seen this. And that is that the institutions that we've built for ourselves and depend on in our daily lives, whether that's our healthcare system, whether it's our financial system, whether it's our political system, wh whatever it is, we've relied on these uh, to do things for us and help us do what what we want to do in, in our lives, in our businesses, whatever. And they're not working well. Um, people are not getting the value they expected. They're not getting the value that they've paid for. But more importantly, um, some of these institutions are actually getting in our way. So the authors propose this idea of social entrepreneurship, which is really that if you as an individual see something that's not working, something that's not right, why not take a step? And do a little research and figure out if you can in some way make a difference. Now, the lead author here, Charles Koch, is 85 years old. Koch Industries, highly successful company. They have their own version of uh, continuous improvement. It's not to our production system, but they have principles. And they've been uh, really guiding him personally. And that's what influenced how he's run the company for all these years. And so he takes a lot of that and says, you know, if we as people individually um, went out into our communities, into our churches, into our wherever, whatever we wanted to look at and actually take a deep interest and just start doing things about it. It's, it could be a sea change. It's, it's ground up. It's not top down. And that's really what's going to make it last. It's going to make it sustainable. And guess what? If you're doing something interesting and great, people will naturally jump on that bus with you. And maybe we can get some actual change going on, change for the better in this country. So it's an it's a really an inspirational book. I I'm about two thirds of the way through it. I recommend it with without question. Awesome. Yeah, and we've seen plenty of that during the pandemic of of all sorts of micro and macro change uh, led by people doing what they can do um, uh, in in any domain. So. Uh, what I've been reading and working on for a while, because I tend to only read this one at night, I, 
I do like to read in the morning, I, uh, but I, I tend to read The Economist usually, um, uh, you know, which is a, it's a combination of news, but also analysis, which I, I it was why I kind of like The Economist over some of the other publications. But I'll, I'll I'll get in a workout. I'll have an espresso. I'll sit down and read The Economist and and uh, then then start my day. Um, but the book I'm reading is Team of Rivals, which is about Lincoln and his and his cabinet, largely. Uh, that he he put together, and you know it's it's a really fascinating book. Besides the fact that it's you know almost eight hundred pages, it's <laughs> it's it's a it's a big one. Um, I'm usually I'm still only holding a Kindle, so it doesn't remind me that I'm I'm done. Other than how many days in a row I've been working on it, but <laughs> the, the leadership behind it is you know incredible. Uh, you know Lincoln's ability when the entire country is calling for the Secretary of War to be dismissed and and he basically gives a huge speech about how it's all his fault and and you know just incredible uh what he what he did and how he was able to piece things together but it, it's also interesting that it makes today's political theater which you know many people will think is the worst it's ever been you know forgetting that Aaron Burr shot Hamilton um and but but it, it makes it makes it look like a school play Today, today's political theater is nothing. Um, well, speaking of theater, people know Aaron Burr shot Hamilton because of the play Hamilton. Yeah, they, yeah. they do know that. They don't realize that that was wasn't just an anomaly, right? It was. Right. Yeah. I mean, during you know during uh, leading up to the Civil War, not even when it started, but before it started, you had one congressman beat another nearly to death, putting them in the hospital inside the chamber. Right? Mm. Um, you know, so so p- p- political theater was a uh, uh, was was pretty severe, but it's a re- it's an extremely well written book. Um, really, really enjoy it. So uh, about two thirds of the way done. So uh, if people are looking for something to keep themselves busy, definitely pick this up. Yeah, I've I've heard great things about that book. Um, over the years, the only other comment I'll add: it's funny that for safety's sake, you're not allowed to have a laptop out during takeoff and landing, but an 800 pound, 800 page, <clears throat> it almost sounds like 800 pounds, an 800 page book flying around the cockpit or the cabin is uh, okay. not really, uh, right. not really. Yeah, good idea that's okay. <laughs> cockpit cabin. That's the whiskey talk. Hey. So let's wrap this up. <laughs> well, let's do that. Let's wrap this up. Well, mine was really, really good, gentlemen. <laughs> Salute. <laughs> Cheers. I, 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 I saw Jamie pour a little more. I poured a little more. <laughs> I did. I, know, I think I am done for the evening. But we want to ask everyone uh, you know, to check out past episodes at leanwhiskey.com. You can spell lean whiskey however you like, and it'll get you there. Um, you can also go to leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey. Um, you can also go to Jamie's website. Yep, you can find me at jflinch.com and then slash lean whiskey to, to find the podcast. And Adam, what, what website do they find, do folks find you at? Well, the best one today is leanrecruiter.com. There you go. We hope people will go and check that out. So if this is your first time listening, um, let's say if you're streaming it through the webpage, you can look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts many other places, basically anywhere you might find or listen to a podcast. And, and please do, you know, rate us, review us, uh, subscribe. 
you know, send, send us emails even off, off the systems uh, to share your feedback. You know, it helps us, but it also helps other listeners, um, helps them find it, uh, it helps you find it. So please, please do do that. And uh, until next episode, to all our listeners and to each of you, cheers. 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 I'll throw in one, one, one last, last thought. If, if people do have questions that you might want us to touch on and try to answer in future episodes, um, you, you could email me, mark at markraben.com or jamie at jflinch.com or email us both. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thanks, Adam. Hey, thanks. Appreciate being here. But I had one last, last thought. Because you know, our, our you know, Adam and I have at conferences had a chance to have a drink together and talk shop. So that's what we're trying to recreate here. I look forward to doing that again with you someday, Adam. Hey, very cool. I really enjoyed this. I, I hope I lived up to your expectations. <laughs> uh, yes, this is where we say yes, Jamie. Absolutely. <laughs> Waiting my turn. <laughs>